Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Investor Hot Seat. My name is Dustin Robinson, and I am your host. I'm the managing principal of Eater Investments, which is a venture capital firm that invests in early stage psychedelic companies, including the company we have on our episode today. While there are plenty of media platforms that are covering the psychedelic space, as an investor, I just didn't think they were asking the questions that I was curious about. So we launched Investor Hot Seat with the intention of asking those questions, the questions that I wanted to know as an investor, the tough questions that CEOs need to be prepared to answer. Just to be clear, this is for informational purposes only. We are not soliciting investment and we have the full terms of conditions that we encourage you to go see on our uh, homepage of the Psychedelic Invest website. We just pulled up those that legal disclaimer right here, but you could view that also on the psychedelicinvest.com homepage as well. The agenda for each episode will be five minutes where our CEO will be presenting. That will be followed by 30 minutes Q&A that myself will be asking, and then we will reserve five to 10 minutes for the audience to ask any of their questions. So if you have any questions whatsoever, you do not need to wait till the end. You could just drop them in the comments box and we'll make sure that we get to them after I'm done with my questions. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Chris Witowski, the CEO of Solera. Chris, I'm going to pass it to you for your presentation and then you're you're gonna jump into a Q&A. You have five minutes and you're on the clock. <laughs> All right, thanks, Dustin, and, and thank you all for being here. Uh, first of all, I wanted to congratulate you, Dustin, for a great inaugural uh, interview with Anthony last week with Awaken. He has a brilliant accent. I will do my best. Uh, I'm a little froggy, but um, again, happy to be here. So let me tell you a little bit about Solera. We are a biotechnology company, and we are taking first-generation psychedelics, things like DMT, dimethyltryptamine, psilocybin and psilocin, psilocin being the other active ingredient from psilocybin and optimizing these compounds. And we're doing this in one of two ways, either by formulation, creating ways to deliver these compounds more effectively than what's currently being done, and as well making small chemical modifications to them so that we can create better optimized compounds, whether that's reducing off-target effects like hallucinations uh, and creating more scalable treatments we see a major issue potentially with the industry and, and how you commercialize these psychedelic therapies and having um, you know, multiple therapists uh, observe the patient over a you know, four to six hour, sometimes longer treatment. And again, within the United States, these psychotherapy-based uh, uh, treatment protocols are really not covered by insurance companies. So you know, how, again, do patients actually uh, access this treatment. So our platform, our company is really focused on ways to optimize these therapies. Um, and my background personally as a natural product scientist, I have my PhD in chemistry and over 60% of all drugs have really been derived from nature. So what we're doing at Solera is just really optimizing these compounds in ways that, um, you know, I think a lot of others maybe uh, really haven't taken the same approach. Um, and you know, one of the ways that we're, we're looking to tackle first an indication is social anxiety disorder. Uh, anxiety disorders uh, affect 40 million people within the United States. Obviously coming out of the pandemic, um, you know, creating social interactions again is, is something that maybe people will be uncomfortable with. 
Uh, these types of uh, afflictions have increased 25% since the pandemic. So again, this creates an opportunity to create new and innovative ways to, to really treat people. And our, our compounds really can be broadly applied across the, I'll, I'll say this quite a bit today, but CNS. So that's the central nervous system. Uh, so this covers um, depression, anxiety, substance use disorder, PTSD, uh, largely these compounds interact within the brain across all of these disorders. So it's our task as researchers here at Solera to figure out exactly and precisely which of our compounds and formulations work. So um, I know I maybe have uh, another couple of minutes, but I'll throw it back to you, Dustin, uh, for the Q&A session. Awesome. Thank, thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. You did a good job of uh, quickly explaining Solera. I know you guys are doing so much, so hard to kind of boil it down into, into, into five minutes. So I want to start off one of the things as an investor we like to understand is the why. Um, so I know you and your co-founder, Jackie, you got started very early in this nascent industry. Um, so could you just talk to us a little bit about how you met Jackie and what really inspired you guys to start Solera? Yeah, so I've known Jackie, uh, Dr. Von Salm, for over 10 years. We actually worked on our PhD program together in natural product drug discovery. Um, so again, working on very related projects to what we're doing today. Um, she and myself both interacted across various forms of drug discovery. Together, uh, we have over 30 years of, of drug discovery and development experience. So, you know, this is something that we've been doing our entire careers and really just so happened to find ourselves and a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do this for mental health and CNS disorders. Um, you know, some of the other ways that we have worked together is actually within the cannabis industry. Um, I was an early employee for a startup um, back in 2015, brought Jackie into the company, and together, I mean, we helped build a multi-billion dollar company within that industry. Uh, together, our projects were largely focused on different formulation techniques and, and how we deliver these compounds to patients and, and largely focusing on non-combustible inhalation, whether that be meter dose inhalers and nebulizers, a lot of transdermal products, gels and patches. Um, and really having a lot of interactions with patients is something that we took away from that industry and, and really taking that into Solera today and how we think about the end patient first and what are they going to be comfortable with using. Um, you know, I think sometimes within the industry, we can surround ourselves with people and, and maybe an echo chamber a little bit that thinks everyone is going to want to experience a psychedelic therapy. And, you know, I think broadly, I think maybe we'll get there, but at least in the short term, you know, I think ways that we can deliver compounds that are more traditionally prescribed, um, you know, take-home therapies and things like this that aren't mind-altering, that aren't ego dissolving, I think are things that really can make a difference right away. And obviously, I think this is going to solve some major problems and how we scale these therapies to millions upon millions of people that need it. Absolutely. And, and the way I think of Celera is kind of in three divisions. You have your your two delivery systems. You have the transdermal patch and the, the nasal spray as well. You have second, you have your NCEs and then Third, you have your brain platform. So I want to start off with your transdermal DMT patch. So my fund, we've seen a lot of different companies looking to develop transdermal technology. We've also seen several companies that are looking to develop DMT in other delivery methodologies. What, what's unique about your particular transdermal patch? 
And why did you decide to use DMT as the compound as opposed to some of the other tradition, more traditional psychedelic compounds? Yeah, so I want to take the first part um, and, and just say that, you know, oh, sorry about that. Uh, need to keep moving here to keep our lights on in the office. Um, I would say, you know, all the verticals of our company, whether that be formulation, whether that be NCEs and our technology platform are highly synergistic. These aren't separate projects. They all intertwine and really wrap around DMT itself. So DMT is the core structure that we are looking to optimize formulation wise and with our NCE platform. Um, and we're aggregating all this data within our platform. So again, all of this really is intertwined with our various projects. Um, DMT is a great compound. It's safe. It is actually naturally produced in the brains of humans. Um, so it's obviously there for a reason. And how do we harness and deliver this compound more safely and more effectively and less invasive than what's currently being done with intravenous needles uh, currently? So again, I mentioned some of our background, both uh, the founders of Solera are with Transdermal Technology. So we've commercialized, developed these products before. Uh, so we're very um, uniquely ingrained into this technology. Um, it's something that we're really excited about because DMT has um, efficacy at lower doses, at non-psychedelic doses or sub-psychedelic, for instance. So uh, this has been proved out in, in preclinical studies looking specifically at neurons so they can create the uh, neuroplasticity that other psychedelics have, but at lower doses. As well, in behavioral studies, DMT is also active for anxiety disorders, depression as well, at sub-psychedelic doses. So how do we harness this? Uh, a DMT patch is almost an ideal microdose delivery system in that you know, we can develop a very low-dose sustainable delivery system over multiple days. Uh, and it's something that can ultimately be taken home by the end patient um, without the fear of hallucinations. Um, and a DMT patch, again, kind of covers all of these various aspects. Um, and we're, we're really looking forward to, to bringing this product into patients for the first time. Uh, happy to announce we are actively uh, filing our IND and hope to do so in the next couple of months. And, and um, you know, with, with uh, some luck and uh, good feedback from the FDA, we'll be dosing humans very, very soon. That's very exciting. So, so one thing we talk a lot about on this show is patents. So it's great to have a technology. It's great to prove that it's safe and efficacious. But as an investor, we like to understand, you know, what is that moat? What is your patent position? And I know you guys have a very strong priority date um, on your DMT transdermal patch. Um, but one of the requirements with patents is that they're non-obvious and inventive. And so from what I understand, you guys are using a known compound, DMT, um, and you're also using a known delivery system. So I'd like for you to explain what about your DMT transdermal patch makes it non-obvious and inventive. Yeah, that's a great question, Dustin. So like you said, an early priority date is the first filing date that you have to overview your invention. So for us, the, the DMT patch goes way back to, to May of 2020. So really at the infancy of, of the industry, we really spent, we founded the company in 2019 and spent the first year in stealth mode, just understanding what had been done research-wise, understanding the prior art and where we could find areas where we could patent and, and create novel IP within our development pipeline. Uh, so we saw the transdermal delivery of DMT as being a particular area um, where nothing else had been done. No one has created similar products 
No one has characterized these products. No one has demonstrated that DMT can be even delivered transdermally. So these are all things that we included within our patent application. Again, we created a, a lot of different prototypes with examples of different adhesive systems, different excipients, all the different things that can uh, increase the delivery of DMT uh, through a skin membrane. And this is a very similar approach that we've taken in the past, both myself and Jackie in the cannabis industry. Um, and we're successful there together. Jackie and I hold more than 10 patents. So, you know, this is something that we've really done over our careers. And, you know, without, you know, trying to uh, forecast what the, the U.S. Patent Office, the World Patent Office will say, you know, I think we're in a very strong position to to really have issued IP around our DMT patch. Got it. And and as you mentioned, you guys are focused on social anxiety disorder with your transdermal patch. Uh, could you talk to me a little bit of why you decided to choose that indication? And also, I'd like to understand a little bit better why you believe your sub-hallucinogenic approach will be effective for this particular indication. Yeah, again, another great question. So social anxiety, like I mentioned, coming out of the pandemic is an area that we think is going to continue to have a strong demand from a, you know, a patient standpoint. Uh, over 40 million people are affected by anxiety disorders just within the United States. And when you look at the current standards of treatment for social anxiety, it's things like SSRIs, which are really only for chronic use and not necessarily acute social settings, or benzodiazepines. So, I mean, these are compounds that are overprescribed. They have issues with uh, addictive potential, drug-drug interactions, overdoses. So, you know, both the current standards of care for social anxiety really can be approved upon and have not been approved upon in many, many decades. So with social anxiety disorder, what we're able to do in a clinical setting is actually provide very uh, precise ways of monitoring patients that aren't just the self-reported metrics. And, you know, when you look at large doses of psychedelics and, and the typical trials, you know, the self-reported metrics are great because large doses of psychedelics for many, many people are life-changing events. So, you know, of course, self-reporting before a psychedelic dose and after a psychedelic dose, you're going to get a huge delta or change between base state and, and post-dose. But with a microdose type patch setting, you really need better ways to, to precisely identify what the product is doing. And, you know, what this allows us to do is put somebody, a, a patient with social anxiety in a public speaking event and, and really stress them out. And then we can measure cortisol levels, blood pressure, heart rate um, with a placebo or with our product. And with these quantitative measures, what we can ultimately do is reduce the amount of patients that we need, say, in a phase two trial. Uh, if we were doing so self-reported metrics, you would probably need a thousand or more patients. But with more quantitative measures, we can reduce that to maybe a couple hundred patients. So, you know, really just looking at a phase two trial, we're able to save, you know, $10 million or more just in the clinical development of that product. Great. And so could you explain, I know you mentioned that you're just filing your IND, so you haven't dosed humans with this DMT transdermal patch, but you've done some animal work. Could you, could you talk a little bit about what the, the preclinical work that you've done thus far and, and what it's showing? Yeah, so we're showing great delivery over multiple days. Right now it is a three-day delivery rate with a patch. Um, obviously, once we start dosing humans, the, some of that might change, but that's why we are looking for the phase one trial to really inform us for dosage into a phase two. 
Um, you know, other preclinical data shows that DMT is active at subpsychedelic levels. Again, it's an endogenous compound, so it's produced within the brains of humans and many other animals. So just harnessing a way to get the compound into the bloodstream systemically and, and monitor what it's going to do. Um, so we have, you know, great conviction that this is going to be a product that can ultimately surpass some of the, the current standards of care like SSRIs and benzodiazepines. And, and ultimately, I think, uh, can be a product used by many, many uh, people that are afflicted. And just so I'm understanding, the, the normal psychedelic paradigm that we're working in is that the psychedelic compounds will be taken at a clinic. Um, but in your instance, you guys are trying to do, you know, sub or even non-hallucinogenic doses. What 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 is actual the delivery? Are you expecting that people will be taking, you know, putting on your patch right before they have some sort of social event or do they use the patch on a weekly basis? What's what do you expect the delivery to look like of this transdermal patch? Yeah, with a transdermal patch, there is sort of an accumulation period for the drug to reach into the plasma in order to have sort of the, the sustained benefits. So, you know, what we anticipate in some level is, you know, getting ready to go into a social situation, applying a patch beforehand, um, and then, you know, letting the patch have its effects. The great thing about DMT is it does have a very short half-life. So if a patient wants to remove the patch, once they do so, literally within minutes, the drug effects will start to fade off. So uh, it is something that, you know, we are designing more for acute settings as opposed for more of a, a chronic use. But ultimately, you know, we're going to let the clinical data sort of inform what's the best way to use the patch. Got it. Awesome. And so so that's the DMT transdermal patch. Obviously, a whole lot of more questions I could be asking, but I want to make sure we we move on to some of the other divisions that you have. So your new chemical entities. Um, so what you guys are doing, how are your new chemical entities improving upon some of the other psychedelic compounds? And what is some of your preclinical work showing with respect to some of your lead MCEs? Yeah, thanks for asking, Dustin. We're really excited about what our NCEs can do. Um, so from the get-go, what we've really tried to design is ways that we can reduce hallucinogenic effects in, in these compounds. And, you know, we believe with this, we can develop more traditional take-home medications, you know, reducing some of the, the clinical dosings, you know, improve access for patients. And we're really starting to see this play out now with a number of our NCEs and preclinical studies. Um, I would say with a, a few compounds that we've dosed already, we're showing that hallucinations only occur at very, very, very high doses, like 10, 15 times what it would take, say, traditionally DMT or psilocybin. So this includes a much broader range where we could dose these compounds. And in our preclinical studies, we're also uh, looking at a number of behavioral tests for antidepressant effects, anxiolytic effects for anxiety, uh, and substance use disorder. I will say with, with uh, depression in particular, we're seeing some very, very promising activity. So the forced swim test is what's used for any antidepressant um, in development. So with one of our compounds, SIL001, we've shown that uh, it is more as active as psilocybin at uh, psychedelic doses, the psilocybin at psychedelic doses. Our compound is as effective without hallucinations. And you know, this is something that has really never been demonstrated before. And 
you know, really to, to simplify what we're doing is we are just putting one atom onto DMT, onto psilocin, onto psilocybin, and we can neutralize hallucinogenic effects. And we are creating new chemistry in the process. We have a very, very talented team of, of synthetic medicinal chemists, computational chemists, myself and Jackie are, are really working on this project too. And you know, by placing one atom to remove all of those side effects is incredible. And creating novel chemistry in the process means that we have a myriad of other changes that we can also make on the compound to say, make them more orally bioavailable, reducing some side effects at, at other serotonin receptors that are responsible for heart abnormalities. So, um, you know, from an IP perspective, these compositions of matter are really, really crucial and valuable for a biotech company like ourselves. And I'm happy to say that we have about 140,000 compounds within our patent applications. And I would say we have a very good claim to these compounds being issued. And, and just so I'm understanding your NCEs correctly, with respect to the non-hallucination part, are it, your intentions, I'm assuming, are so that it doesn't hit the 5-HT2A receptor that is responsible for uh, the hallucinations. Are you looking to essentially still hit all the other receptors that some of these compounds hit? Or are there other particular receptors that you guys are looking to, to maybe not hit with your new chemical entities? Yeah. So 5-HT2A is just one receptor within the serotonin system. There are 14 or so that are known to date uh, and that is responsible for causing hallucinations, but no psychedelic is specific just to that one receptor. So it's the term commonly used is called polypharmacology or, or promiscuity. So all of these compounds interact with a myriad of, of glutamate, of dopamine, serotonin, adrenergic. So we're trying to keep all that other chemistry the same, just remove activity at one receptor. And, you know, we've shown that we can reduce the hallucinations there. And that opens up, you know, a number of possibilities across new indications. So most psychedelic um, studies omit patients for history of psychosis and schizophrenia because agonism or, you know, basically inducing um, H 5-HT2A effects really exacerbates these in patients. So just by turning off that one receptor, again, this is really going to open up who we can dose and who has access to these compounds. Got it. And so, you know, I want to really dig into this sub-hallucinogenic dosage stuff because, you know, our, our fund, we have a very strong conviction around macro dosing. There's been a lot of very, very strong research. Most of our investment dollars have gone towards macro dosing. Solera is actually the only company that we've actually invested in from a sub hallucinogenic approach, but we still are developing, you know, our, our thesis around that as a fund and trying to understand it better and really understand the full uh, landscape as far as other research going on that, that is demonstrating any sort of efficacy there. So maybe it would be helpful for why you have such confidence that these sub-hallucinogenic doses will be will be uh, effective, whether it be the research that maybe you have done or, or other research that you, you think is compelling? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I would say our data shows that non-hallucinogenic compounds can still be effective in these um, indications. Um, you know, one of the earliest psychedelic, the first psychedelic compound approved for depression was actually esketamine. And this was marketed by Johnson & Johnson, it was approved in 2019. So ketamine does not interact at all with serotonin receptors, especially 5-HT2A, the one that we talked about, which is responsible for the hallucinations. But ketamine and 
all other psychedelic compounds really do share a common mechanism of action. So ketamine, again, with these same properties of antidepressant effects, doesn't interact with this one receptor. So just saying that we don't have this one effect, for us, it's a side effect. It's an off-target effect. It's something that's not necessary for a therapeutic benefit. Um, so yeah, I would say our data shows this across a number of compounds. There are other researchers who have shown similar effects that you don't necessarily need hallucinogenic doses or a hallucinogenic substance in order to have therapeutic benefits. I mean, all antidepressants on the market currently, except for ketamine are non-psychedelic. Um, and ultimately, again, I think it comes back to indication specific um, dosing. So let's say something like neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's or dementia, you know, these types of patient populations likely don't need a hallucinogenic dose. But we've shown with our compounds that we are targeting areas of the brain that are responsible for learning and memory. There are other serotonin receptors that are beneficial in these and our compounds are pretty selective at these receptors. And we do have really positive uh, learning and mood benefits. So, you know, we think this is an area where these compounds can be specifically applied. And we're actually actively applying for grants for Alzheimer's funding in order to pursue these projects for new indications just outside of neuropsychiatric disorders. But I think when you couple the underlying potential of these to, to kind of ameliorate mood and, and make people feel better, and if you're able to get a drug on the market just for that in these patient subtypes of Alzheimer's disease and dementia, you can then have a, a product on the market and then dose patients over a longer period of time and see how it's interacting with them. Is there any disease modification? Is their learning and memory improving or, or not getting worse? So these are areas where I think, you know, indication specific is, is going to play a large part into whether it's a hallucinogenic dose or not. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I'd like to press on this topic a little bit more since we are on investor hot seat. I'm sure some of our viewers are a little bit skeptical about some of the stuff that you're saying. I'm sure we have a lot of people who are, you know, strong advocates of, of that mystical experience. And a lot of the, some of the top researchers have said that it's really in that mystical experience where you, you're able to have that un new understanding and kind of rewire your brain and kind of reprocess some of the things that might be causing some of your indications. So are there certain indications that you think maybe the sub hallucinogenic doses will not be effective? For example, with PTSD, where it's very trauma based. And right now with MAPS's research with MDMA, psychedelic assisted therapy, a lot of it is that, you know, that 5-H2A activity that allows them to, or at least it seems like it's the 5-HT2A activity that allows them to kind of reprocess that trauma and come at it from kind of a, a different place and, and, and think of it in a different way. So are there particular indications that you think maybe won't be um, able to be addressed in a sub hallucinogenic dose? Yeah, I think for things that really have deep rooted trauma um, or, you know, suicidal ideation, treatment resistant depression, things that are really rooted into who a person is, those large psychedelic doses can just break someone's thought pattern with one or two doses. So, you know, that's something that, you know, maybe a longer microdosing protocol might be able to do. But, you know, when you look at the effectiveness of what's being done, it's it's it certainly, I think, areas like you know, major depressive disorder, things like that might be better suited for large psychedelic doses. Again, I'm a little skeptical on how you commercialize a product and, and, and make that viable over the long term. Um, but certainly, you know, I think the hallucinogenic nature 
can be beneficial for some people. It's just, you know, we're looking at ways to overcome some of the problems. You don't necessarily need the, the large hallucinogenic dose for neuroplasticity. And that's creating some of these new thought patterns, new neural pathways. Um, and you, again, our data and others support that you don't need a hallucinogenic experience in order to induce neuroplasticity. Got it. Um, so I want to now pivot to the third division. This is probably the division that I'm most excited about, your comp computational chemistry platform uh, that you guys call Brain. Could, could you describe the development and commercialization flow for this platform and what makes your platform different from some of the other companies that also have platforms looking to develop NCEs? Yeah, great question. Thanks for asking, Dustin. So, you know, we call our computational platform Brain. So you might hear me refer to it uh, as Brain. So let me just explain to you a little bit about what computational chemistry is. So we we have a number of receptors within our brain, like serotonin, adrenergic, et cetera, that we've crystallized these proteins. So we know what they look like in a 3D map. So now we can use computers to then model these proteins and our drugs, say our NCEs, and put them into the protein to see how well they bind. So instead of having to physically synthesize these compounds, have a biologist put them in the receptor, get a data out. I mean, we can do this very, very rapidly and scale much, much quicker using computational chemistry. So computational chemistry is a newish field in the last couple of decades, but we really have a great team working on this project. We have Dr. Dan Santiago, who actually was trained under the, the head of Schrodinger, which is the major computational chemistry platform. Dr. Stephen Austin is a biomolecular physicist who allows us to do things that no one else can do. And also Dr. Bryce Allen, who is you know, a world-renowned data scientist, literally wrote a book on it of, of how to incorporate data. And he's allowing us to, to incorporate real-world evidence. So we know a lot about serotonin receptors. We know a lot about psychedelic drugs. So incorporating this data into the platform makes it much more reliable, much more predictable. So again, computational chemistry, typically what you have is a static receptor. And this is something that most people will put their ligand in. Okay, it binds, you get a result. Um, however, this receptor does not exist like this in the body. There is water floating around it. It is actively moving. So we're what we're doing is actually using really physics-based technique to solvate the protein in a more nat natural state, allow it to move around, and putting our ligand in there. So we're not just seeing how well it actually binds, but we're also seeing functionally how does it work. So this provides us insights into the mechanism of action. So we actually have novel insights that no one else has created just by doing these types of studies. And we're able to optimize compound on an atom by atom basis on a very, very small scale that again, traditional techniques don't allow us to do. Absolutely. And I think some of you guys who are listening may understand why me and not as a scientist, I've brought on board to my team some of the brightest scientists to help me understand some of the some of the things Chris is describing. So I know enough to be dangerous, but you know, this this industry, it, it's a very complicated industry to invest in. Obviously, it's similar to biotech in a lot of respects, but you kind of have the additional aspect of it being psychedelics that just creates another level of, of complexity as an investor. Um, so it, it seems that your, your brain platform has a ton of potential. We've looked at other companies looking to, to build platforms as well, um, but these platforms generally are, are very expensive to build out. So could, could you explain to me where exactly you are in the development of this brain platform? What else still needs to be done and, and how much do you think it will cost to really build out a truly robust platform? 
you know, actually, Dustin, this computational platform in terms of cost efficiency is much, much greater than than what we're doing, say, on the synthetic side or on the clinical side. So, you know, this, uh, you know, cost input versus ROI is massive on this computational platform. So again, I mentioned, you know, our ability to scale with this is, is much greater than we can with traditional methods. And this will put your, your cost into a better perspective. So let's say we have a million NCEs that we want to screen. And actually with our computational platform, we can screen 1500 compounds per hour. So if we wanted to go through those million compounds, it'd take us about a month to get all the data and aggregate it. But in a traditional sense, other biotech companies doing the synthesize and test method, I mean, it would take them a decade or longer, tens of millions of dollars to do. So we're saving both time and money by using this platform the way we are. Um, you know, your question about, you know, what do we need in order to scale this even better? You know, again, the cost efficiency here is, is really, really great. You know, I would say with another million or $2 million, we could really incorporate in a lot more biological data. And this is data that we're generating on our NCEs. We can add to our headcounts. So we can, you know, really process this data much better. And ultimately what we're doing now is we have a large data set. I mean, we're actively collecting data. The computers to my left here are humming away. And, um, you know, we're now looking at pattern recognition using AI, you know, advanced machine learning to, to look at some of these different interactions so that we can now be able to predict, better predict, you know, which compounds are going to be useful for specific indications. And, you know, this really is the next frontier and something that we're really, really excited about. Got it. So I, I want to move into kind of your commercialization strategy. Like you mentioned, your, your brain has already developed, you know, sounds like hundreds of thousands of different compounds and you have your your DMT patch, you have the internasal delivery system. So from a commercial, a strategic commercialization perspective, are you looking to take all these compounds through, through, you know, full clinical trials, or do you expect at some point that you'll likely license these compounds out and, and partner with someone else? And if so, how far down the clinical trial phase do you plan to take uh, these various different programs that you have? Yeah, great question. So, you know, we really are experts in drug discovery and development. So that's really our sandbox. And that's where we like to play. Um, you know, our goal from all along is to develop a very unique uh, pipeline of, of formulations and compounds and, and prove these out to a point where now this is an asset that others would be interested in acquiring or partnering with us uh, to take forward into later phases of clinical trial. This is a traditional way that biotech companies operate to bring in non-dilutive revenue without commercializing their own drug products. You know, as you and your listeners probably know, I mean, just to commercialize one drug, assuming everything goes right, you need at least $100 million to do this. And then you have to have Salesforce to commercialize it. So, you know, that's obviously a lot of risk on the company to then, you know, try to, to push that forward. So, with the model that we're using really de-risks the pipeline quite a bit. And we have a number of ways that we're doing that, say with our computational platform. Um, you know, I would say we are in active discussions with a number of pharmaceutical companies. The interest there is real with mental health, with CNS uh, and these compounds, especially ones that are differentiated from, you know, say pro drugs or other deuterated compounds. I would say there's, there's quite a bit of tangible uh, interest there. Um, I would say we are very close to actually announcing our first uh, pharmaceutical partnership and, and one that we actually hope to do very, very soon. So we'll keep you in the loop as uh, we, we finalize this agreement. 
Very exciting. And, you know, I think it's it's just great for the industry to get big pharma involved. We saw the deal that Otsuka did with Mindset, where they licensed out a couple of their fem families of chemical entities. And, you know, whenever I hear big pharma getting involved, I think it's just a, a very positive sign for the industry. So you kind of touched on, you know, how, you know, some of the expenses. It's very expensive to do some of the different things you're doing. I like that you're planning to hopefully out license eventually to kind of bring down some of those costs. But with these three divisions, there's certainly going to be, you know, a lot of costs involved. So can you tell me how much capital have you guys raised thus far? Um, and what are the main, and, and, and what do you think you'll need to really hit your next milestones? And what are those next milestones that you want to hit? Yeah. I mean, I'm extremely proud of how capital efficient we've been so far as a company. You know, we've, we've stayed very lean. We have seven full-time employees. Six of these are scientists, masters or PhD level. Um, all of most of these are scientists and researchers. You know, it's one of the reasons that we've stayed a private company just to not incur a lot of, you know, overhead costs, IR costs, you know, costs of going public accounting, those sorts of things kind of add up and, and really distract what we need to do, which at this stage is really innovative science and research and development. So to date, we've raised just a little under $3 million. Some of this is a non-dilutive, uh, actually a grant matching program here uh, with the university. Um, we are actually uh, affiliated with the University of South Florida. We're a private company, but we work within the incubator program. So again, we have access to a lot of resources and equipment, which keeps our overhead costs really low and allow us to operate very efficiently and, and generate the data to date, which with only $3 million, I, I really doubt there's another company in the space who has been as efficient and as productive as we have. Um, you know, with that being said, like you said, there there are, you know, ways to, to bring in more capital to accelerate our projects. And, you know, again, we are a private company, so I, I won't get into any specifics. Um, but I would say within the next couple of years, we, we are looking to bring in between uh, five and $7 million. Um, and this will accelerate a lot of our programs. I mentioned the IND filing for our DMT patch, you know, a really big milestone for us and getting into a phase one uh, is a big milestone for any company is first in human dosing. Uh, really excited about that project. We'll also have um, our, our NCE program. So we already have 10 NCEs um, that are synthesized. Uh, some of these are still undergoing testing, uh, looking at the various behavioral tests for depression, anxiety, substance use. So over the next 12 months or so, we'll have a, a myriad of data on these new compounds. I do mention with patents, um, with our early filing date, we are looking at the beginning of 2023. And we anticipate to have multiple patent issuances, which I think is going to be a big milestone within the industry, because a lot of people are, are really going after the same things. And Kind of waiting for some of those to, to flesh out until you really see kind of who are the emergent leaders within the industry so we're very confident in where we stand with ip and you know i think over the next six or eight months we'll really you know have many patents in hand um and lastly with the computational platform i mentioned how cost effective this is we're going to continue developing this um you know potentially adding to our headcount or other ways to to really expand what our capabilities are in terms of data processing finding new ways to screen these compounds you know, we have 140,000 compounds and, and with the, the, the application of computational chemistry, we're going to have a very robust data set, not looking at our compounds, but others as well, and really matching these to ways where we think we can be really effective in the clinic. Absolutely. So I have just one more question. I want to let the audience know, feel free to drop any questions. We're going to get to them in, 
in just a minute after my next question. So if you have any questions, drop them in the comments box and we're going to get to those in just a minute. So last question I want to ask is, is about your collaboration with NIDA. So mm-hmm. a lot of the viewers may not know what NIDA is. So could you discuss a little bit about what NIDA is and, and what you guys are looking to achieve with this collaboration? Yeah, so NIDA is actually the National Institute on Drug Abuse. It is a government agency who typically looks at the negative effects of, of you know, maybe drugs of abuse. Uh, however, we've, we've struck up a partnership with them and we are looking at, uh, you mentioned our DMT intranasal formulation. Again, this is a way to overcome the intravenous dosing of DMT, which is commonly done. Um, so we're going to actually have top line data for our intranasal formulation in animals very, very soon. Um, as well, we'll have IND enabling studies uh, with them looking at the pharmacokinetics, uh, the metabolite profile, and some other pharmacodynamic um, metrics for our two lead NCEs that we select out of the 10 uh, that we're currently gathering data with. Um, so again, you know, we're, we're striking up partnerships with government. Um, you know, I think our data is, is very solid and very robust. And, you know, I think the validity of what we're producing, whether it be with pharma, government, um, universities, I think is really, really special. Awesome. Well, you survived my questions. You did a good job, Chris. We're going to, we're going to see how you do with the, the audience's question. So I'm going to go to the, the first question from 420RX. She says, will the transdermal approach bypass cardiac, cardiac arrhythmic issues being triggered? So, I mean, most of those cardiac issues are what we call a dose response. So the lower the dose, the lower the cardiac risk, the higher the dose, the generally the higher the blood pressure, the higher the potential for, for any of these cardiac issues to occur. So, you know, again, looking at a low dose, um, you know, I think we'll be okay, but ultimately, you know, we do need that human data to, to kind of support the, the hypothesis there. Got it. We're next, we're going to go to Adam T. He says, how many milligrams would the pal- patches be delivering over how long the body load of DMT can present even at micro doses. Have you guys observed this at all? Yeah. So um, again, we are a private company and, um, you know, trying to keep some things close to our chest. I would say the dose ranges that we're looking at for the patches, uh, our phase one is going to be selecting two doses, more of a lower dose as well as a higher dose to just look at, you know, whether maybe those cardiac issues are happening at higher doses, you know, whether we're starting to see audio or visual disturbances at either the higher dose or, or the lower dose. Um, so yeah, I, I think we have a pretty robust uh, handle on our phase one trial and, and design and, and really, you know, first and foremost, it, it's just really coming at a point of, is this safe? Is this tolerable? I mean, I, I think one of the, the major things that we might be concerned about is maybe the irritability of, of the application site. But um, from our study so far, you know, we think this is going to be a very safe, very tolerable uh, delivery system. Great. We're going to go to Jane, Jamie Filippuzzi. Uh, her question is, have you done any combined therapies using CBD with a psychedelic? Um, we personally have not. Um, I am aware that our, our other um, studies looking at this currently, you know, CBD is actually a pretty great anti-inflammatory compound within the brain. Um, so there could be potential synergies between that and psychedelics. Psychedelics themselves, again, are pretty potent neuro anti-inflammatory compounds. So, you know, whether it's, it's one combo or one drug or a combination of others, 
there could be potential. I will say though, from a, an FDA standpoint, CBD actually is an approved drug, which makes things a little bit easier to work with. Um, but when you start combining drugs, there's, there's more variables to contend with more potential side effects, you know, safety issues to, to contend with. So, um, we are trying to stick with a, a typical one compound, one, um, target approach. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you run into all sorts of complication with comp combination therapies, but I will say one of our portfolio companies, we they're doing a macrodose of psilocybin followed by a combination microdose of CBD and psilocybin. So if you're interested in, in learning more about that kind of methodology, uh, you may want to look into we health. Uh, next question is with Elaine Kim. She's asking, how would you consider at home sub hallucinogenic dosing versus the massive DM DMN reset theorized to cause neuroplasticity? Yeah, so I'll say for our NCEs, we have not looked at neuroplasticity yet. I do believe that is an area that we are going to investigate in the near future. I mean, we know the large psychedelic doses, they've done uh, fMRI. So this is a way to, to look at the blood flow and brain and, and create those different, um, you know, blood flow interactions, the neuroplasticity type events. Um, you know, other researchers have shown that non-psychedelic compounds or, or sorry, non-hallucinogenic compounds can promote neuroplasticity. So um, that is sort of the, the mechanism of action of that's currently ascribed to psychedelics. I would say some of the work that we're doing with our computational platform, um, maybe you don't quite need the, the neuroplasticity at, at the high doses of psychedelic effects that you do. Um, you know, our current hypothesis is it really is sort of the polypharmacology. It's not just 5-HT2A. You really need other receptors at play in order to have these beneficial effects. And we're, we're definitely seeing that on our end with our data. Got it. And Elaine Kim had another comment. I'm not sure if this was just a follow on her previous one, but she asked about chronic dosing, medical supervision, et cetera. Yeah. Again, I mean, once we get into the clinic, we'll, we'll have much more information about this. Um, you know, again, our, our goal is to have take home medications that people can take without, we'll call it sub perceptual dosing without hallucinogenic effects. Um, you know, our compounds have a very low abuse potential. We have done some studies preclinically to show these aren't activating brain uh, parts of the brain that are um, responsible for addiction and addictive potential, even much, much lower than we've seen with psilocybin. Um, so again, I, I think our paradigm is really starting to play out that we can develop non-hallucinogenic compounds uh, with targeted CNS activity. Got it. This is like a fire round. We're, we're firing a bunch of questions. Yeah. So we got, we got Rachel T next. She's got, she says, any consideration for pharmacogenomics and development of these pharmaceuticals? Really great question. It, it's an area that we are actively exploring. Uh, and it's one of the areas where neuropsychiatry really is lacking. It, it's just the biomarkers. How do we look at patient populations who will respond better to treatments? There are some people that are looking at this specifically for 5-HT2A, you know, people with those receptors with large doses are going to respond well because they have a lot of receptors. But again, not looking necessarily at that paradigm, you know, how can we look at more specific physiological or, or uh, biomarker-based approaches to develop these compounds? Um, it's an area that we are, again, actively exploring and data that we can aggregate into our computational platform to make it more robust and more predictable into the clinic. 
Got it. And 420RX is asking, what classifies as sub no is it no visual disturbance as opposed to non-hallucinogenic? Yeah, it really depends on the dosage. So would I say our compounds are entirely non-hallucinogenic or psychedelic? You can't really ask a mouse if they're hallucinating, right? So you look at the, the head twitch response. So this is something that is very correlated to human dosing. Uh, you basically measure how much the mouse's head's twitching. So we are, we do see some head twitches at very, very high doses. We're talking like 100, 200 milligrams per kilogram. I mean, these are way, way out of, you know, what we consider a typical, you know, therapeutic dose. Um, so at much lower doses, say like 10 milligrams per kilogram, these compounds are non-hallucinogenic and they are, you know, very beneficial for mood for things like anxiety and depression. Absolutely. And I'll just point out that, you know, the, the animal head twitch is something that has been used a lot. Um, but of course, we still need to do human trials, right? So, so animals don't always get it right. So we feel, you know, I know Chris is very confident that these are non-hallucinogenic or even sub-hallucinogenic, but really, I, I kind of just, you know, warn the audience that in the industry in general, that, you know, we don't want to be overly confident with some of the animal research. It's, it's great if you're getting not no head twitches is certainly indicative of not having a psychedelic experience. Um, however, it's also not definitive that that will be the case in humans. So we'll go to um, the yeah, Dustin, one, add, one yeah. comment to that. And uh, maybe this is a novel insight for the, the hot seat. So one of our compounds or, or sorry, one related compound to what we're developing has been dosed in humans for, you know, decades and has been shown to be non-hallucinogenic. So that gives us more confidence that once we bridge into humans, we'll continue to see non-hallucinogenic uh, responses. That's great. Yeah. Hu humans is what we want to see as investors. So the so next question is from Perseverance Lifestyle. She's asking, you have so many exciting divisions inside your organization. What communication software do you use internally to keep the teams connected and on the right page at the right time? Yeah. So um, largely we use uh, the Google workspace uh, to aggregate all of our data, all of our communications. Um, you know, on the laboratory side, uh, we use a software called Benchling. And, and this is something that is actually compliant with FDA standards. Again, we are working with scheduled compounds. So that's something we definitely have to keep on, on good record. Um, so it's compliant with that. It aggregates all of our data, keeps it on the cloud. So, you know, let's say, God forbid, there's something that goes wrong or a lab notebook is lost or misplaced or, you know, gets wet. You know, we still have that data in the cloud and um, you know, that's something that we can pull back. We can search for specific compounds, specific dates, um, even classes of compounds, data associated with those compounds. So, um, yeah, it's obviously a good question. Yeah. And so next question we got from Darnielle W. Um, essentially, he's asking any particular skills needed to get involved in the psychedelic industry. I guess, you know, it depends on which company you're kind of working with. But I guess, Chris, I guess another way to frame the question, are you guys hiring and, and what kind of skills are you guys looking for in the people that you're bringing on board? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're always open to, to people with specific skill sets. Um, but I would say in general, you know, having a neuroscience background or, or psychology background, depending on what type uh, or what uh, sector of the field you want to get into, I would say in general right now, there is a great need for, for certified therapists to, to actually facilitate these treatments. Um, there are a number of, of trainings going on 
uh, say at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who's actually developing a master's program. So they, they actively host the MDMA trials, the psilocybin trials. So you're getting hands-on experience with the patient. And these are protocols that I think are going to be pretty widespread and, and things that you can plug into. I mean, there are I think MAP says they're going to need 30,000 therapists by 2030. And, you know, we are far short of that. So, you know, if that's an area, I would say there's going to be, you know, a lot of opportunity in there. Um, for us, you know, we are focused on, you know, hardcore uh, science and neuroscience. So those are the types of people that we're looking for internally. Yeah. And, and I always try to, you know, inspire people to try to get involved regardless of your background i mean i'm an i'm I'm an attorney also a licensed cpa um i'm coming at it from an investment and a legal perspective um but all these companies are businesses right they need cfos they need assistants they need account managers they need you know different aspects so certainly it's great to have kind of a science or a medical background um certainly there's a huge need for trained therapists to deliver some of the psychedelic therapies um, but also don't be deterred if you don't have any of those particular uh, hard skills. There's there's obviously opportunities for everyone. Um, Adam T's question. When you mentioned DMT, are you guys referring to NNDMT or 5-MeO? Yeah, NN-dimethyltryptamine. So the, the non-methoxy compound, that is the compound that we are focused on. And the follow-up question from Adam T, why did you guys decide on DMT formulation you landed on? So DMT is an endogenous compound produced in our brain. Uh, it is active at lower doses as opposed to other psychedelics. So this was done in comparison to psilocybin, ketamine, LSD, uh, I think 5-methoxy DMT as well. And it was the only compound to have the neuroplastic effects at lower doses. Um, as well, DMT just so happens to be almost an ideal transdermal drug. Having come from the, the cannabinoid world where these compounds are very oily, they don't want to get through the skin. DMT is particularly good at as very small molecule, like getting through the skin, having water solubility. So those are types of things as a formulator that makes it really, really great. Got it. And I think that is the last of our questions. I want to thank the audience for heating up the hot seat, asking the questions that you asked. Chris, thank you. You survived the hot seat. You did a great job. Really appreciate you being on the show. And hopefully we could have you on in the future as well. We'd love to do so. Thanks, Dustin. Have a good one, guys. Bye. Take care.